Welcome to the 525 Records Podcast. Shared a cigarette for breakfast, shared an airplane ride for lunch, sitting in between a ghost and a walking bowl of punch. Can you play a little My guest today on the podcast is Adam Alcala. He's a Portland musician, holding down drums in bands like The Smokes, The I Can I Can'ts, and Barnacle. We talk about Portland in the 90s, how great it was, uh, the warehouse music chain of record stores that once was a staple of the Portland music community. We talk about what it was like to see Radiohead at La Luna back in the day for five bucks. We talk about uh, what it's like to bring home a drum set to a house full of roommates who, um, you know, may or may not be receptive to the uh, noise that pours forth from practicing the drums. And there's even a small cameo appearance from uh, Mr. Mark Breitenbach, who was featured on episode one of the podcast. We get him in the mix for the Eastport Warehouse discussion, so hope you enjoy it. It's episode six of the 525 Records podcast, Adam Alcala. Cigarette for breakfast 
Adam Alcala, welcome to the 525 Records Podcast. Hey, Elliot. Uh, good to be here. Thanks for having me, man. You know, uh, I've heard from sources that you're an incredible fan of the replacements out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, I just had to bring this up right away because, uh, you know, I was born in Minneapolis and spent a lot of time there. Half the fans of this podcast reside in Minnesota. They are also huge replacements fans. And I thought, what better way to kick off the podcast than the awesome song Portland? Because it's, uh, you know, it's a killer song. I love that line in there, credit card almighty. I mean, how great is that? Bring it in the next little bunch. Yeah. Um, hey, let me ask you, what's the sentiment for that band growing up there? Is it, uh, are they legend or just like everywhere else in the world, just sort of underachieved? Oh, no, they're definitely legend status. I mean, you know, the the Minneapolis bands, uh, if there is a hierarchy, surely they're at the top of it. One of the stories I wanted to get to right away is there's this legend of the worst replacement show ever performed on the internet, and it's from uh, December 7th, 1987. It happened to be in Portland. At La Luna, right? Uh, I think it was at Pine Street, though, because if you remember that, it did have those second-story windows. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, if you're in there, it's that it that Pine Street became La Luna. So it uh, it was when I, um so I've been there. It was uh, converted into like a little pool hall. Well, the the song that we played at the intro is called Portland, and it's by the Replacements, and it's sort of their apology to the city of Portland for that show. Legend has it at that show that uh, you know they um, threw a couch out of the second floor window onto the street. Um, a lot of people say it happened before the show. Some people say it happened after. This is the legend of this night, though, but it it's going down on the internet as the worst replacements gig ever. They were, of course, getting trashed in the green room before the show. Uh, legend has it also that Paul uh, tried to do a Tarzan on the chandelier, which came crashing down. Another fascinating, interesting thing from that night is uh, Tommy Stinson. You know, they were n- notorious, I guess, for taking their clothes off and throwing them in the audience. And uh, Tommy had 20 bucks in his jeans, which, you know, that was like $100,000 in 1987. Right. And uh, he forgot he had money in there. And so the crowd was so cool. He begged them, please give me my jeans back. I need that money. And they made their way back up to the stage, $20 bill intact. <laughs> I've also heard a story where he <laughs> took his per diem and thought I... With or without this per diem, I'm broke. So he lit that per diem straight on fire. So I mean, I've, I've heard those stories too. So, um, you know, that's that's the cool thing about that band. There's a, a really uh, great book called Trouble Boys that came out um, God, two, three years ago. And um, it's, I guess, I don't know, the definitive um, story of that band. And Well, you know, it's it's easy to think that it's, it's easy to have uh, rock and roll excess rebellion and just getting trashed every day before shows. And it's actually really hard. You, you have to have such an abundance of just natural talent that you have enough to spare where you can do it, you know, half in the bag. And, uh, you know, it's not as easy as everybody would think, you know, but I just I love that story. And uh, that's such a great song. Believe it or not, I actually uh, I was a craps dealer in Las Vegas at the Flamingo for a little while. And uh, night, this guy comes in in a Jackpot Records t-shirt, and uh, he's trying to get a marker, so he's got to throw his ID. And I, I told him, you know, because Jackpot Records, obviously, classic Portland staple, and uh, being in Portland quite a bit, uh, of course, I had to say, hey, nice shirt, man. Where Did you get that in Portland? And, you know, he goes on to give me his license, and I'm like, no fucking way. Sure as shit. Tommy Stinson. 
Wow. Playing craps at the Flamingo. So that's my little Tommy Stinson story. But uh, the other thing, I don't know. Did you know that he took over for Duff and Guns N' Roses? Yeah, yeah he's got, he's got uh, you know, quite a story. I mean, yeah, he's done, um, what, Perfect and Bash and Pop. And uh, yeah, he's in GNR for, for a while. And while we're on the Tommy Stinson early replacements, uh, I got this thing. It's just from the wiki. I'm going to read it because I think it's awesome and hilarious at the same time. But the band embarked on its first tour of the United States in April 1983, joined by Bill Sullivan, a young security guard, as a roadie who approached the band after a show. Tommy Stinson dropped out of the 10th grade to join the rest of the band on that tour in 83. And uh, they toured up and down the East Coast and uh, opened for REM. And then uh, this is the best part. When they made they, they toured the East Coast and they went back to New York in June. And so it goes on to say, the replacements returned to New York in June of 83, playing at CBGB. The gig was a failure. The band were almost refused entry. Bob Stinson was thrown out as soon as he walked in the door. You can guess why. And the replacements were the last of five bands, which meant they played in the early morning on a Monday night. The show at Polk City was not a success because the replacements, quote, were so loud and obnoxious that the people just cleared right out, according to their manager, Jefferson, who was one of the instrumental people in a Twin Cities label called Twin Town, which was pretty infamous, but... It goes on. This is the best part. Uh, the band supported R.E.M. on an eight-day tour later that summer, deciding that they, quote, should alienate the audience as much as possible. How great is that? I, I would argue that that CBGB show, by their standards, may have been a complete success. That's You never knew with that band. I had heard, um, well, I'm pretty sure it's true, that Tommy Stinson's mother had to write like a permission slip for him to drop out of school and go on tour. And I think if I understand it right, that is in, was it the new music experience up in Seattle is at Paul Allen's museum. I think that's framed up there. So yeah, he started so young. How cool is that? Yeah. I mean, dropping out of high school back then was kind of a big deal now. I mean, it's a miracle if anybody graduates, it's come down so far, but you know, they say the dream of the nineties is alive in Portland. But if, if you were alive in Portland back in the nineties, I mean, it was a special time and place. What was that first like apartment? Where did you live? Were you on the East side, West side? I mean, not... so I lived on Cooch street in North, excuse me, Southeast Portland. And my first, uh, challenge is I, I lived on a street called couch street. Did everyone pronounced cooch. So that was my first thing. And I, um, so when I tell people, well, I live on couch street, but no, you don't, you live on cooch street. So I lived in Southeast Portland, some little, um, two bedroom, fourplex converted house with three roommates. And, uh, and we were all young and, you know, didn't know what we were doing or uh, it, it was just a matter of time before we got kicked out of there. So I don't think we lasted more than Oh, two or three months. Um, and then um, we moved to Northeast Portland where we all got a house and uh, picked up an extra roommate. And I want to be you know, all these folks that I'm speaking of living with are my best friends to this day. And, um, you know, and having that house um, provided a, a place for me to, to start playing the drums. And, um, you know, again, me starting to play the drums was no burning ambition that seeded itself and came about over months it took about a week and i should also mention i didn't notify any of my roommates that i was going to start playing drums so that was its own sort of challenge in and of itself but they were so cool with it 
Oh, dude, roommate, non-musician roommates love drummers that play practice drums in the house. You know, I have to give special shout out to Steve and Jason and Todd. I mean, I legitimately came home one day with a set of drums. I set them up in the basement, which is Todd's bedroom. So, I mean, um, and there's no way to, to practice the drums quietly, you know, um, and you're just sucking out loud and can't hide it. Sucking out loud, man. That's perfect. It's such a perfect description. I remember one time I was practicing and uh, early on and I didn't know, you know, I was just awful. And I would put headphones on just to muffle my own noise. And, and I looked up in the basement and there was some neighbor person peeking into the window, like their hands over her ears, just yelling, stop. And, um, and I, I recoiled, I like ran away. I'm like, they, they're hearing me suck. And I, and so I ended up having to like tape or uh, nail up curtains over the windows just so I could not see them, you know, judging me from outside. <laughs> This is the big difference of people that keep going and people that just put it in the closet and forget about it. You know, it's that drive, you know, people say, oh, you're horrible. You should just quit. Neighbors yelling stop through the window. You know, there's there's two paths you can take at that point. And the really, truly great ones usually put up curtains and keep going, you know, but a great handful of people also just pack it up, put it in the closet, never to be uh, seen again. So, but when you were living on Cooch Street, is that why you went to so many shows at uh, Pine Street Luna? I mean, that must've been like right around the corner. Mm, well, that's kind of where things happen in, in the sort of music that I was, um, I was into, um, you know, and not to gloss over Portland in the nineties, it was such a, a vibrant place. And, that opening part of Portlandia just rings so true. It, it just captures um, everything from just, I don't know, like just how the, everything just feels. Um, and Portland was that sort of slackerish part-time at a coffee house, everybody in a band or an artist, um, you could live cheaply. Um, there were just so many great things about living in this town. And, and, you know, you talk about kind of pushing through is, uh, um, being in Portland during that, during that time, just starting out, there was just a lot of energy to feed off of, to, to keep me going. But, you know, it definitely took a lot of those hours just, you know, once I learned how to practice the drums and, um, just staying after it. And, and, and I'm sorry to, to answer your question about the La Luna. Um, yeah, that's just where bands I liked play. There's a lot of, you know, um, those up and coming local bands. I mean, um, I could go on with, Radiohead played there and Cranberries and all these bands for, you know, four or five dollars back in the day. And you so am I under the impression that you saw Radiohead back in the day, like 91, 92 must have been their first American tour. And so they roll into Portland and for five bucks, you get to go see them. That's pretty awesome. So, you know, I, I worked at at the warehouse records in the 90s, all throughout the 90s. And, you know, music was obviously way different than um you know, uh, every, every town, every city had their own local rep and they would come into record stores and, and give you tickets and swag and, um, music to, you know, promote their bands and put up displays. And, um, uh, and Radiohead was one of those bands. And so, you know, to be honest, the, the tickets may have been five bucks, but they may, I may have got in for free and man, it was not sold out. I mean, like it, none of those shows were, I mean, they were that up and coming and, and because of the, that connection to with those reps, shows like that, uh, the rep said, hey, do you want to meet the band? And so, like, you know, suddenly I'm, I remember hanging out with um, Ed and um, the drummer's name is Pat. 
um, just me and, and I think my friend Todd, uh, of course, new creeps. So love them for that. But just, you know, hey, and we talked soccer for a little while and it was a whole different world. It really was. And it's so crazy to, to have a lineage where, you know, if you're in Portland and you're in a band, you're playing a lot of shows, you know, maybe not, you know, high profile Rosalind shows, but you know, it's, there's, it's like, they're just like you, you know? I mean, before Nel, Nels Klein joined uh, Wilco, he was doing $10 cover charge shows and, you know, shitty Portland bars and, you know, like those, it's so crazy to think now when you look uh, you know, back on it, cause those guys got so huge, you know, but like famously Nirvana also did a live record at the Pine street. I think it was 90 or 91 oh, really? and they tacked it onto the bleach uh, remaster 20th anniversary. So, you know, there's a, like, uh, you know, flaming lips. I mean, God, I mean, you name a band that go, went through Portland that didn't play that venue. You know, I, it's funny. I, I've been able to meet some of my um, musical I don't know if you want to call them idols, but people that I really idolized at the time because of their music. And um, I wish I had any ability to be less than completely awestruck whenever I, I, I met quite a few people. And I always imagine like, I'm going to be so cool. They're going to be like, Hey, who's this guy? Let's be friends. And you know, so I, I wanted to be, um, you know, cool, but I was just, for as much as it happened, I was nothing but the just fanboy, just freaked out. At one point, I think I met the, um, the lead singer from the Sundays and she had to tell me to calm down because I was just blah, 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 and I just couldn't relax and so I mean uh, you know I dude I have a I have a very similar story uh, I met the drummer for Red Fang at the B-side one night with uh, John Rasmussen the legend of John Rasmussen and uh, I was I was so fanboyed out John's like yo you need to chill the fuck out dude the band that, that really did it for me was this band live um, their first record came out uh, Mental Jewelry and um, that was the one where I thought I, I want to play drums and that drummer Chad Grace, he's just, just, you know, my favorites. And, um, so I saw them a bunch, um, maybe during the throwing copper tour, I was able to get backstage and my band had been around long enough to, to make our tape. And, you know, of course I had dreams of, you know, befriending him and giving him our tape, you know, all this and fanboy stuff. And I, I made it backstage and I made it through my turn to meet and greet and, and kind of found him alone. And I think I just walked up and was like, tape and like, put it in his hand and, and walked away. I mean, so, uh, but it was so cool back then to really legitimately feel like that stuff was going to make a difference. Just the, the fun of it all. I'm sure it got thrown away, but I was happy that I, I had something to give to him. It was a lot harder to produce even a cassette tape back then. I mean, you had to have a four track or something to be able to record on too. It's not like today or, you know, the early two thousands, just CDs just flying into the garbage, you know, at every show. Man, but that remember. band, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was kind of the band that got it all going, which uh, by my inside sources was a band named Barnacle. Yeah. Yeah. That was the one. And, and that's, that's how it started as I was working at the warehouse and um, a woman named Karen had just started working there and she moved up from San Francisco. And um, I had said, matter of factly, I think I'm going to, buy some drums. And she said, Oh, I play guitar. We should start a band. And, and literally uh, I, that was it. And the next day I had a drum set and we were in a band, uh, for what, seven, eight years. Um, and, um, she was you know, a little bit farther along than I was on the guitar and she, um, she had a handful of songs and I had never played. And so again, going back to having just great roommates, not only allowed me to, to be terrible, but um, for suddenly there to be more noise uh, from a guitar in the house and it clashing and, and at my best, 
I was awful. So, you know, and we just did that. You know, I, I still practice, excuse me, I still play shows in, um, without shoes because I used to just in the mornings, I just, uh, wake up and sleep on the couch until, you know, someone or Karen came to the door for band practice and we would just go right downstairs and play, you know, play for hours. So, um, but yeah, we did, we did Barnacle for a long, long time. It was, it was a long time. Great time. Yeah. She was an awesome guitar player and a really uh, good singer. And, uh, I have a song queued up. I hope it's cool. We should listen to a little Barnacle right now. I'm not going to play the whole song cause it's like 10 minutes long, but I think the intro is really cool. And it, it just, it's such, it just epitomizes that sound, the sound of the nineties, like the dream of the nineties. This is the sound of the nineties. No doubt about it. All right, here we go. song is amazing it sounds so well recorded for being you know from the early 90s do you remember that session i mean what was that like how did you guys record that so a couple things about that uh just to show my um true um fandom of chad gracie uh, if you listen to the song i alone um that uh intro uh is completely stolen <laughs> from him it is the same thing <laughs> back then and you'll notice a difference between my my progression to music is Back then, I would learn something. I was like, that's going in. No matter what, that's that's going in. I, I didn't really, I crowbarred things in just because I learned something new or could do it. I didn't really pay much attention if it, if it fit. Um, it's always exciting when you get to a point where you have songs cohesive enough to, um, to go record. And um, we were never, we never wanted to do it. Um, we weren't super DIY people. Um, and so... We always knew we'd, we'd think studio. I think I think we were able to afford a sixteen-track studio back then. But but uh, Rob, I think had been in the studio in some previous stuff. But I'd never been in one. I don't believe Karen had been in one. And so um, it was just the coolest, um, funnest experience. And you know, for no other reason than, than just to hear your own stuff back at, at such you know quality and, and, and volume. And, but that album we recorded in about three days. Um, I remember the gentleman who did it. His name was Carl Brummer. I forget the name of the studio. Um, and, uh, you know, we were in and out. It was all, it's all done live. Um, with the exception of the, of course the vocals are overdubbed and, you know, we also simply 
didn't know what we could do with the studio beyond just recording ourselves, And that's basically what we did on a, on a higher level is plug in our instruments and, and pl- press record. One of the things I like about it is the drums are, you know, especially on that kid, the drums are just center stage and taking, you know, a lot of attention. And, you know, there's no, whenever I listen to you on the drums in any given song, you can always identify you what your drumming style reminds me of is like a tiger laying in the weeds kind of camouflaged under the song just waiting to pounce on the perfect fill like a lot of drummers they just go fill crazy they had they can't resist they can't help themselves in the first 30 seconds of the first verse there's a crazy fucking drum fill just to try to impress people you know but your your style is so in the pocket it's so rhythmic it's so you know, you, you are such a tempo monster behind the drums that whatever song starts, you know, you, you really are like a train conductor. You, if people are going away too fast, you no no, I'm going to rein this in. But like those little, those little double hits on the rim shots that you're doing, it's such a great example. And I can find that example in almost any single song that you're on the drums in. It's like, you know, God, is this guy ever going to do a fill? And then when he does, it's the most perfect timed, the most perfect spot, like a tiger in the grass, just waiting to strike. You know, when you listen to us, um, you know, Rob on the bass was doing a lot of lead runs and Karen was really doing a lot of cool, uh, you know, fill patterns or jangly patterns on, on, uh, on the guitar. And I was certainly, I would say over the top on the drums, but we were busy as a band. I mean, our music was you know, a lot busier than I thought. I haven't heard it in a while, but um, I wanted to do less of that, man. I wanted to have less opportunity for me to have a, a perfect song, but for the, the stupid thing I did for no reason um, on drums. I don't do it to any great regard. I, I know what you're talking about. I, I hear it. I, I do kind of wait to do a little, a little something, and it always tends to show itself. And if there's not there, then it, it, it's not there. But um, the best part is once you find that perfect moment, you don't hammer it to death like a lot of other drummers. You know, you're, it's very tasteful. It's either a one and done or maybe it'll re- repeat at a, on a second chorus or something. But it's not a lot of guys. They find that moment and it's like, oh, I'm going to do that every single four bars. And, uh, you know, I just I, I always found that this is why you are the most unsung Portland music scene drummer in my opinion and why i couldn't wait to get you on the podcast that early barnacle stuff is kind of an 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 early look at what the smokes would turn into because rob on bass you on drums it really uh it was the very beginning of the smokes let's talk about rob 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 man so you're in barnacle you guys at some point are splitsville and then what happens first is it king size and then the smokes uh just tell me about tell me well, about Rob back then. Barnacle was, if nothing else, a very practiced band. We we would play you know six, eight, ten shows a month, and we always insisted on on practicing the night before each show, no matter you know if we played shows Tuesday, Wednesday, we excuse me Tuesday, Thursday, we'd practice you know Monday, you know Tuesday, every day in between, right? So we were always playing, and <clears throat> you know Rob had dedication like I had dedication. Um, he never missed uh he um called the band and it was really hard and it was a relationship like any other and and um rob and i've always been friends through everything uh but i missed seeing him so much you know we were we were always together and so um i you know i I at that time decided i was going to learn guitar a little bit and I, i did some singing in a band and playing guitar and uh and rob 
was doing his thing and he, you know, went wherever he went and, and created these songs. And, uh, you know, Pat's always been a, a friend of ours. And, um, for people that don't know, for people that don't know, Pat is Pat Kearns, another Portland legend, uh, ran a studio in town, uh, founded and fronted blue scouts for black hearts. Uh, really good guy. Man, the fact that in my my stupid little thing I've done, I, I've supported Rob Burnham, Mark Breitenbach, and Pat Kearns. I mean, I've supported those guys in any small way. It, it's truly just it, it blows it blows my mind. But um, but anyway, so you know, I was doing my thing, and it may have been a year, maybe more. Rob was out on a he delivered flowers, and he he stopped by one day, and he said, um, "Forming a band, and uh, me and Pat are in it. We want you to play drums." And cool. And, you know, one thing, it may have been the very next sentence, but he said, but I'm in charge. I'm in charge, you know, and, you know, that Barnacle record self-titled because we just could not sacrifice our, our egos for some person to defer or agree to disagree on any song, album title. You know, like we, we could not agree on stuff like that as a band as we got towards the end of it. Um, inconsequential stuff, but nonetheless, you know, it just became, you know, something that, you know, just, you know, it just ran its course. And so he said right away, I, I'm in charge. And any, anybody that knows Rob, well, you can just hear him saying that you can see him saying that, you know, I'm in charge. One thing I'm in charge. Yeah. I mean, that's so Rob. Yeah. And, and that's, and you know, and it's, that was fine by me. Um, I didn't like being any part of a democracy, democracy, if you will. I mean, I certainly, um, had a lot of hurt feelings within the barnacle, just being overly sensitive to, to just, to, you know, getting my feelings hurt for no for stupid things. But, but, you know, I didn't like that, you know, Hey, who's going to call this person and this person who's the responsibility to, to book this show and what about money and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, and so it either ended up not getting done or we had a manager for a while in, in, in barnacle and that's when we really got a lot of shows. But so I think I went to like one or two practices and in Bill's, uh, we used to practice our, our friend Bill, who is the father of Jason, who just one of the coolest men I've ever met. And he opened up his house to to us and, and Pat. And there's a lot of music going on in that house. It was just one of the happiest places of my uh, whole musical journey was, was Bill's house. And uh, I played a couple times and we went downstairs to the studio one day and I, I laid down drum tracks. And, you know, and then, man, I there was no band. There was no practicing. There was no playing shows album was first. We started with the record. And so, um, they came to me, Rob came to me a little while later and said, it's, it's done for the most part. And I think I, there are some things on that record. I want to think I just played drums and didn't do anything else, but there are some things as I listened to it that I, I know I helped, you know, some overdubs. There's a tambourine in there and a guitar slide that I'm not saying I was instrumental, but I was there for that. So I definitely did some, some overdubbing with them, but man, if I spent, four days working on that record, I, I would say that that would be maximum. It was the coolest because I did all that. And then one day down the road, it was just here, this is finished. And now we can go start promoting it. And it was just a, such a great way to start and lead with that record. Uh, we've done the, there's no, we've done the, let's build a following and, and create a need for a record. We just said, you know, from day one, if somebody likes this and they want something, let's have something. And again, Rob learned he had a plan and, and he paid attention and I, and you know, best decision he made, I think in the smokes to just from minute one, like this is the, I'm making all the decisions. And to his credit, he made every decision. Well, he treated us fairly. 
he ran it like a business, uh, meaning that you know expenses were paid for from any money the band made, or I don't know, maybe even out of his own pocket. I don't know, but being in that band was pretty much as simple as showing up for me. It was really, really easy. Being it's so band. rare to put the music first. You know, a lot of bands they get together, they make a T-shirt before they even write a song. Uh, but you know, when you when you commit to doing the record first and letting it speak for itself, it's it takes on a, a whole new uh, level and. You know, that's it's such a great position to be in when you have a guy like Rob who is, you know, you, you want to get behind, you want him to lead, you know, you want to serve the song. This I remember that studio, um, the little bit this this was studio thirteen, uh, Pat, if I'm butchering this, I apologize, buddy. But yeah. you know, um one thing about being in the band with Rob is is again is to is to know him. And and I don't need to explain my my love for that man. He's he's my brother, but you know, within any inner workings of a band, there's just learning how to deal with, with one another. And, and in any endeavor I've been at, I've never experienced any true conflict that may have been about song structure or something stupid, you know. But but when it came to even those things, um, Rob has a way of simply saying no. And then you just know that that's that's he's decided. And, you know, and if he's open to working on something, he'll, he'll absolutely listen to it and and uh, and work on it. But that's where I think, again, the smokes worked because he just would be the, the ultimate decider. And, you know, we never questioned him. we never pushed back. And, uh, and again, one of many, many, many ways it was so fun and easy, uh, to, I had very little part of that band. If I really, really think about it, you know, um, I was just there. Rob did that without any prima donna, without any ego. He he's the most humble, yeah. great. Uh, after a show, you know, you see people come up to him and he say, "Hey, man, we like the show." And, and hey, thanks a lot, man. You know, like he knew how good he was and he knew what he had. You know, but there wasn't this air of, "Oh, I'm so talented and I'm gonna, you know, uh, destroy things and make you guys feed me green M and M's." You know, that that's the best part of Rob. I think he's the the lack <laughs> of prima donna. I won't know what, what Rob looks like to other, you know, to the outside world because I've known him for so long. And I, you know, I knew him when, man, he, when Barnacle Days, he could play and he was established. And, you know, I met him through an ad in the paper and, and we started some other band. He, he called like that night and he never heard me and Karen play. And he said, I'm going to be in a band with you and Karen. And, and, uh, and he could play and he put up with us for, I mean, a good, we had a show within about eight or nine months, but I mean, you know, I couldn't play and, and Karen, you know, was still learning. We were all learning and he, he was very patient. And if you listen to some of that smokes stuff, and I don't think people are, excuse me, barnacle stuff. I don't think people know that, that, um, Rob, I, I would consider Rob a bass player first and foremost. And that's barnacle stuff. He's killing it on the bass. Um, and when he stopped playing bass in the smokes, I really, really missed it. Uh, um, that is something I had to live about in kind of the, the second half of, the, of being in the smokes is I, I lost my, my rhythm section wingman, if you will, after all those years uh, of having it. It was a huge transition. Oh, I can only imagine, you know, you guys gelled so well together uh, in that format. And when he does go to guitar, it is, it is quite the change. And the early days of the smokes, you know, you guys, uh, he's still playing bass. If you care about how the, the smokes came about, um, as pretentious as this may sound, I read a book, and we all read a book uh, um, based, I read it because Rob recommended it, um, called The Confederacy of Dunces, and just a fantastic book, and the story behind that book is incredible. And so we all 
um, we all love it. And um, there was a gentleman in there, in, there, in there named Burma Jones, and he smokes a lot. <laughs> and so we're like, well, let's call, call ourselves Bourbon Jones and the Smokes. And so we were Bourbon Jones and the Smokes for many years. And we were on tour in L.A. Um, uh, I don't know down the road and we were reading a trade magazine, a local rag down there. And there was a band called bourbon Jones that was playing locally. And so we thought, Oh shit, we got to do this again. We don't want to get sued. I don't know why we were so afraid of, of getting sued or, but we, we changed our name and we just dropped bourbon Jones. And that's how we, um, you know, that's how we arrived at the smokes by, you know, shortly after getting off the road there. When Rob and Pat kind of join forces, there's this little golden zone of music that starts happening, you know, right around that time. Absolutely. I, I we used to play, um, Barnacle played a lot at uh, the local punk rock club uh, back then was called the Satyricon, and it was a renowned place. I mean, it was a cool place. And we, you know, we never made weekends really, but we, you know, um, I think new band nights were Monday. So we were, you know, Wednesday, Thursday night bands. And, um, and uh, over time, there was a restaurant they opened up next door called Fellini. <clears throat> and uh, we would play normally our show, and then we would go eat and wait for the night to end before you load it out. And anyway, uh, um, the band, or Karen and I and somebody else are, was sitting there, and Rob never came. And so I didn't think much of it. And, you know, one thing I regret is not checking out enough of the bands that I played with because I was just so, I don't know if it's arrogant or just sick of it. And, um, you know, so I never very rarely i should say did i listen to any of the bands and and rob stuck around and listened to this band called big jim and he walked up to our table and i remember him just sort of standing there and um i've known rob a long time and i've i've truly seen him just blown away I, i've rarely seen him just blown away should i say it and he was just like staring at us like i just saw the most amazing band and it was big jim and pat cringe was in that band um they were awesome. And, um, you know, Rob being the cool guy he is and, and Pat being the cool guy he, you know, he turned out to be like, they quickly, they became friends that night. And, and um, over, you know, over time, we, we played many, many shows, but then Big Jim was a huge part of, um, of my, my musical foundation as well. I mean, uh, uh, early on, they, they, um, I really liked a song of theirs called A. Like I just loved it. And I may have asked, you know, if I could play drums on it and man, I've been playing for a year and a half, you know, I, I didn't know much, but I wasn't afraid. And, um, so, you know, I forget the exact time frame, but down the road, you know, Pat invited me to Seattle to, to play, um, on this song and Rob and I went up there and I was, I felt so cool and you're young and you're broke and you're sleeping on floors and you're scrounging for cigarettes. I mean, there's no beer money, like the whole thing. Right. And, uh, and then going into this, you know, this studio that was, um, still a pretty new experience to me and, you know, recording on this song that wasn't my band and the song that I loved so very much. And, and, uh, you know, so that's one of the ways like I got to know Pat and, you know, I loved big Jim uh, so much. It, I, was so glad to have a, they're from Seattle, so they weren't local, but I got to play enough of them. Like I, I liked having one of my favorite bands being not just my friends, but a band I could see often. They were so good. Um, 
And so Rob and Pat just maintained that friendship. Uh, and then, you know, again, they, that's, I don't know exactly how, how they formed the smokes, but, you know, I remember being so excited to play with Pat because I mean, I would watch him play and just think, um, uh, I want to be up there. And, you know, towards the end of big gym, uh, I, I sat in on drums a few times, but w when I was able to, to be in a, a, a more of a collaborative effort with Pat and Rob at the same time, you know, and then throw Mark in on top of it. I just could not have been in a better group uh, with a better group of people. Just crazy, crazy. I, I fit in there somehow. Truly. And I'm not being self-effacing. Like what I decided to do when I, if you listen what, to Barnacle Records and you listen to the Smokes Records, is I decided to just calm down and less fits a lot easier. And um, I just started playing simpler and i found myself liking if i'm just playing a straight four four beat for the first 90 seconds of a song because you know i'm not messing things up i'm not getting in the way and no one listens to the song for the drummer you know and i think whenever i listen to my music i hear the drums first and you know i'm trying more now to listen to the song as a whole and um so that was a big part and rob talked to me about it kind of he never said, I need you to play this way. He's so good at steering you. And like, there are probably things that over time or over, over the years, he would have liked to that I have played differently or done differently. And either he sort of guided me that way, or we came to a consensus or I found it, or, or he let it slide because he, you know, he, he, let, he deferred to me because it worked. He, you know, he certainly the farthest thing from heavy handed. Uh, he never said, do this, do, don't do that. But, um, you know, when I got into the smoke, I just didn't want to put him in that position and I don't want to be in that position. The best part of you is that you don't need to have that conversation from a songwriter perspective. So, you know, if Rob has to go to you, it's usually like a finesse thing. It's not like a, Hey dude, we need to radically change the way this beat is. And I think this is where it really harkens back to your sort of musical journey of growing up, you know, how you kind of learn backwards, right? If you're, you, 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 most people go from punk rock to jazz in, in a lifetime, but you kind of, you get to punk later. And so you had this whole Smith's Morrissey, you know, pop kind of uh, structure just built into your style, you know, serving the song, making the, and no, it's true that nobody listens to the songs for the drums except for drummers. And, <laughs> you know, that's a select right. group of people. So when they listen, they hear something totally different, but, uh, yeah, you know, I think that really, it was a big attribute in the smokes for you is how you sort of, you did kind of take a backwards journey into your approach to the drums. I spent between barnacle and the smokes. I was in a band where I, I, I wrote songs and I sang for, let's say a year. And, and that was uh, 28 years ago. And, and my singing and, and songwriting and guitar playing in the 28 years has gotten no better. I, I did it for a period of my time. I, uh, I can still play guitar a little bit, but I, I'm nothing else but, but a drummer. But in that time where I could write songs and I had a drummer um, who, fantastic, and he was playing how he wanted to play and, and more power to him, but I was hearing something different. And I was so, in a sense, hearing how Rob or Karen maybe was hearing me stomp all over something that they heard differently. And I, I question if I, how, if I was approachable, um, during my time being, uh, being a drummer to really take suggestion very well. So again, that's why I didn't want to put him in that position. Um, but you know, once I started doing, doing less, it was just something that I didn't have to worry about 
anymore. I mean, sometimes I, you know, if I can, I'll, I'll get away without playing at all. You know, I, I have no problem stopping to play mid song for any period of time. <laughs> there's one song we play. Um, God, back in the day when you could smoke in bars, there's a song called Broken Tire that uh, we played. And uh, I just decided I, that song was my smoke break. And so I, I decided no matter what I write for the song, it's going to be one-handed. And so I, I play the entire song one-handed just so I could smoke while I'm, while I'm playing the song. And, um, and if I played it again right now, I'd still play it one-handed. That's too funny, dude. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing more classic than somebody smoking while playing drums. It used to happen all the time back in the day. If you're old like us, you'll remember, you know, a few people. But the, the thought of that now is like foreign, you know. That's another cool part of Portland in the 90s, man. I mean, like we, I got to do that. And, you know, Portland's a very gray, wintry, rainy town, um, you know, lends itself to, to you know, sort of hunkering down and hanging out and uh, you know, and, and being in those clubs, it, I, I got to, to do all that. I mean, it was Portland in the nineties. I mean, we all know what was happening and, and you know, the grunt was prevalent, but um, the best part was there was, there was no internet, you know, you had, you still had to go to the library. So the music was like the biggest thing going and there's a bar on every corner with either, you know, some acoustic performance or, you know, if you're going to Satyricon to see a show, that was what you did, you know, like, Oh man, I wish I had $5 to go see the yeah. show, get tanked up, drink a couple beers. You know, it was, it had a whole different focus and feel to it because there was no cell phones, social media, internet. That's, you went in, yeah. you engaged at the show, you, you stood there, you didn't do anything else it, you, except watch the show. It, the focus was all about the music. Yeah, you, you wanted to create a memory and you didn't try to catch it through some other artificial means by your phone or something where you can try to enjoy it later. I mean, you, you knew this was fleeting and it was only, <clears throat> excuse me, this was going to, this was going to end. And so you, it's never going to be relived. And so you just better enjoy it. And, um, we didn't even we didn't even really wish there was an alternative. That's just that's just um, uh, you know how things were back then. Yeah, it, I mean it was a special time that uh, I'm glad I got to experience a little bit of. I mean even just the change from the early '90s to the late '90s. You know, like uh, bands like Floater had come along, and um, you know the early '90s was like a, if Portland in the '90s was great, then Portland in the early '90s was like wow. It's like uh, the creme de la creme, the caviar. I remember seeing a band called Sun 60 and loving them so much. And I mean, it took me so long to find that band's music because you just couldn't, it, you know, there was no internet there. I think that album, or excuse me, that band put out a record and one day that record arrived at the record store. And I was like, finally, I can listen to it. And I talk about this with my friends quite a bit is I like how things are so accessible, but I also hate it because when we were coming up, it was so fun to hear a song and try to find that song. And uh, we all have memories of, you know, the, the blank cassettes ready to record off the radio. And so having any version of a song was, was meaningful to you and the instant gratification was not there. And then you had to find, find the song and, and the money and get there. And so it was just so much more rewarding by the time that you finally had that thing. It was way more special, which is, you know, I, I just had to move and got rid of all my, CDs basically and that was so hard because those all have stories behind them, but they're taking up space. I'm so glad you brought this up because it's the perfect segue into the Eastport warehouse because it, people that are young, they don't remember. There used to be things called record stores. You, you had to go to a store to buy a tape 
And this is now three podcasts in a row, which I had no clue how deep this Eastport warehouse was, but it links everybody. I just had the Bush brothers on back-to-back episodes of the podcast. Uh, Eric famously worked at the Eastport warehouse. Um, episode one, of course, features Mark Breidenbach, who was also a famous member of that Eastport warehouse crew. But you you were like the granddaddy. You're like the Grandmaster Flash. You're like the Iceberg Slim of the Eastport warehouse because you were there before any of those guys and you were there managing it. So, and this is the, the total <laughs> tie in, you know, to the, uh, in terms of finding music. Oh, I heard that song. Let's see if it's at the record store. I mean, so what, uh, would you have any good Eastport warehouse stories? And uh, tell me about what it was like meeting Mark for the first time in there. The warehouse is definitely central to my entire life. Uh, my brother started working for the warehouse in like 1988 or so. And he, um, he, uh, had a boss named Jeff and, uh, you know, during that four months, I came home from college and, um, uh, moving back here, um, Jeff offered me a job and I took it, um, at the warehouse just because there was one store in, uh, Clackamas, Oregon, uh, store 362 that I could transfer to, you know, 444 people might know it for what it became, but um, it was not, there's a bigger story to that whole thing. It, 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 uh, 362, the store I worked at was, was there for the only store in Oregon for many, many years. And the old tower records, uh, at Eastport Plaza moved out and warehouse bought it or moved into it. So that's, that was the first warehouse 444. It was a much bigger, uh, you know, what a tower records looks like. It was cooler. Um, it was bigger. It allowed um, for there to be bigger, you know, bigger stocks of you know different musical selections. Um, just just an all around um, much funner uh, record store experience. I, I worked there very very little. Um, I spent most of my time at, at uh, Warehouse Three Sixty Two, which I worked with. You know, just like people have their memories of Four Forty Four. Uh, you know, I worked with such class people that were there for seven, eight, nine years through their getting their degrees and, and being in bands of their own or, or, you know, just that, that period of life where they just wanted something fun to do. And we all took it so seriously. And we were the, the resource for people to find that song that was some earworm in someone's head that we, uh, we had, that they had to get out. And so, um, being the only store in Oregon for a while, we would do things like call radio stations and things like that. But once 444 came, um, there was a friendly rivalry, you know, they were definitely cooler, but we thought we were And uh, but, um, that was just great to have another sort of team down there to, to rely on, to chase down those, the, that music. And they took it just as seriously, uh, as we did. And I still have some really good friends uh, from, from that time. Um, but then they tore it all down. And, um, I would say in about mm, two, 1998, um, uh, they rebuilt it to what it is now, uh, way less personality. Um, I managed that store, um, for oh, about a year and a half. And along that way, we picked up some other stores. I think down in Salem and blockbuster music came online and you have stories from, uh, some of those people joining the, you know, becoming part of the warehouse ranks and, and, um, and yeah, man, like, uh, I, I, hired Mark and I worked with Mark for, I don't know how long. What's so I had Eric Bush on the podcast last week and he was talking about the trifecta of the East port Plaza, which is 82nd and Holgate roughly in Southeast Portland, uh, how there was a liquor store, 
a strip club and a bar all right next to the warehouse and also a bus stop. So you would, and just continuous shoplifting and just the most, the dregs of 82nd Avenue was just right in that, the heart of that Eastport Plaza. I thought that was pretty cool. It was bad. I mean, I remember as a manager there, um, somebody didn't like um, us or me or what, but I think three or four nights in a row, they would, uh, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning would come by and smash out our windows. Um, so I'd have to go to the store at, you know, two, three in the morning and, and uh, sweep up glass and, you know, just sit there until the glass person can get there at six or seven. And that happened three or four nights in a row. Someone just, you know, just didn't like our store. Um, yeah, that was, it was crazy, a, a crazy little neighborhood. So I imagine one day you're the manager at the Eastport warehouse and uh, a very young, very skinny, very good looking one Mark Breidenbach comes uh, stumbling in the store to get hired. Uh, what was it like working with him? And uh, w- when did you kind of start gelling with him working over there? You know, I, I would describe Mark as the same way I would describe the, the people that I've met through Mark. I mean, it's, it's impossible to not like those people. And I just remember always liking him. I just always um, just really, you know, back in retail, you, you never know who you're going to quite work with. And so when I saw him on the schedule, we overlapped or spent a full shift together. It was always enjoyable. And and I don't remember when I left the warehouse, I knew, of course, knew Mark, but there was no like, you know, miss you. It was just, you know, see you later. I didn't know I'd ever talk to him again. Um, truly, I really, really didn't. Um, and, you know, furthering how the, the warehouse plays into that is, is he, um, as I think because an assistant moved over to 362 where I had come from. And, you know, I, that's where I would do my record shopping and he was there. And so we would just, you know, be very friendly. And, you know, along the way he had mentioned he played piano and, and he, I think he mentioned he liked the, the Desky Martin and Wood and Ben Folds. And around that time we were looking for a keyboard part, this one part in, in one of our songs. Um, I thought, I know this guy and he says he likes this kind of music. And if he can even noodle along, you know, fake it, that well and we only need like 30 seconds and we brought him in and uh and he's never left I and mean, just never never left it so that's like a sucker fish which is <laughs> attached to the side of the i aquarium. tried to keep fucking right i was right just now. thinking how awesome it would be man i wish mark could just jump in to this episode real quick and do a cameo uh, and then see before happens. you know it. what is the you have any memories of uh, meeting adam and working at the uh, eastport warehouse Oh man. Yeah. You, uh, you, Adam was amazing. I, I remember, um, uh, he was just a, he was a good manager, a, a fair manager. He, uh, was diplomatic. Um, and, uh, he, he was, uh, I don't, there was, as far as memories go, man, they're, they're all record store memories. We had a lot of, uh, you know, Oh, here, check this out. This is, uh, it shows up in the used bin and you're just like, Oh Yeah. We can play this, and and any time uh, we we could get away with playing used um, records, we would because it was <laughs> it was a break from the playlists that warehouse music would subject us to constant barrage. Uh, they had VHS tape playlists, which I still have a couple of downstairs. <laughs> Adam, um, I, I don't know if this exists anywhere else, but I have a VHS copy of um, all of the uh, the first two albums of Outkast music videos. Um, on like in a little white box, it says warehouse music for promotionally outcasts music. It was, so, it was played on a loop at, you know, whatever warehouse music and, um, man, all that stuff happened because of Adam, uh, 
yeah, I wouldn't have met Pat without um, without Adam. I wouldn't have met Rob without Adam. And any of those people, which are all huge influences in my life now. So when Mark joined, the uh, uh, first order of business was get him something to play, and so we went. We've ran through. What, we tried a Farfisa. It never really worked. I mean. Rhodes, that was awesome, but just such a pain in the ass to work with. Um, Rhodes was we we loved that Rhodes up. Uh, we played the Buffalo Gap almost definitely monthly. Buffalo Gap was a was a <laughs> place out on McAdam in Southwest McAdam Boulevard that uh, was a restaurant downstairs and like a bar upstairs. I think is that right? Adam? That's right. Yeah, right, right. and and uh, and yeah, Rob had an in with the Booker at this place, and, and they they liked the smokes, and so we played there a lot, and we would lug this. 76 key roads um with you know <clears throat> with the bottom uh speaker cabinet yeah. also <laughs> so oh up, yeah up these flight of, huge flight of stairs and into this and on like you know portland weather walking something like that up these rickety old stairs on in the rain constantly uh i just i'm amazed that never landed on us and broke legs or limbs i'm so glad we never had to tour with that thing that would have been <laughs> do you remember packing that some, some something but yeah I don't know, yeah we, we never did that's true it was always lugging it around town well one of my you know favorite things about rob as a songwriter is you know like most of the world's greatest songs revolve around love or stories of love and rob has this songwriting style i could only describe it as he's he's just consistently and always on the cusp of love like every day is like he just broke up with his girlfriend and now he's got this awesome song all about it. And it's, it's just such a, you know, prevalent force. And one of the things that Adam sent over to me uh, are these uncut gems of these smoke songs that you guys apparently recorded at uh, a really nice studio. Adam, help me out here. Was it Supernatural Studio? Supernatural, I mean, these are yeah. unbelievably high fidelity awesome recordings and if it's cool with you guys i like to play one right now it's a song that features the legendary mr mark breidenbach on uh, piano and backup vocals written by rob recorded at supernatural and it's one awesome cut here we go it's called wild irish rose wild irish rose she is so pretty
song is good i mean how do you have these pristine high high quality high fidelity cuts that have never been released like how how is this song just laying around and not out there i mean what an amazing fucking song tell me about what it was like to record that and what you guys remember i remember uh supernatural being probably the the best the coolest funnest experience in the studio Uh, it was just big man it was just um nondescript house that opens up into this like daylight basement so you, you leave the engineering room and you open this door and everything's down like it's, it's in this it's just gorgeous and um just huge was it 32 track i think maybe 64 but one inch tape um there was some digital no i think we did that all, all yeah and uh and you know the best thing about our band one of the best things is we had pat and you know it cost whatever it costs. Rob took care of that, you know. But the friend deal, though. Yeah, and so Pat knew how to just even just how to work it. I remember thinking that the fact he can get any sound to come through that board is impressive. So I'm just dying to know who engineered and mixed that song because the drums sound so good. There's the most beautiful overhead cymbal wash that happens right at the end there. I mean, these, I don't I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, I don't want to like, you know, be too, be a dick or whatever, but it sounds like that was a, how was were those your drums or did you play the kit at the studio? Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, Pat, uh, Pat, it all. So if you're looking for that credit, that's 100% yeah, Pat. Pat. I'm sure Rob had some, some voice in the room, but that's Pat, man. <laughs> um, 
I have one kit. I basically only had one kit, and that's on every record. Some mechanic and stuff. I play. Uh, I play Carrie's drums, but uh, but no. And the thing about Supernatural is they had a drum room, but then there was also the big room. And since it was the room was built down, the ceilings are probably I don't know twenty feet high. I don't want to exaggerate, but mm-hmm. so. I think we set up in the main room for some of that and just with overheads and maybe like a, a bass drum and a, a snare mic and um, just got that really big sound from there. They sound amazing. And it doesn't, you know, having, uh, I'm pretty well versed in most of the Smokes recordings and that that particular studio session, it just smokes any other recording in terms of quality. Dude, there was, I'm sorry to cut you off, man. There was in that studio a wall of in their boxes, perfectly maintained microphones, just like if I don't know microphones, getting to sure this and that or blah, 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 or old timey. So, I mean, there was like a Hammond in there. There was all sorts of keys in there that those came with the studio. So, you know, we were really able to really use the studio for that record. I love the piano outro on that song too. Yeah, that was Rob, Rob and Pat's idea for you. Probably Rob's idea. Both of them. They, they both spent equal amount, you know, Pat never took, mix stuff on his own Rob was always over there and if uh if anything Adam was probably over there quite a bit too for all those mixing sessions I I I skipped out on a lot of that stuff I think I showed up for a day and I think I was there for like an hour and I thought I'm just not necessary here and you know and you know and again they can talk about this but you know I firmly believe that Rob and Pat have a a bit of a deeper thing you know they they did some stuff as a duo you know between all this and so they have if there was ever a um you know co-leader or something a uh, right-hand man it was yeah. you know it was pat and what a great person to have that they they i think planned our band and collaborated on collaborated our projects on it you know sort of different different level yeah def- definitely as far as recording process went having paid a number of uh, quite large studio bills i'm just dying to know who fucking flipped the bill for this recording session oh that was always rob yeah, Rob was the the bill flitter. We would play shows, you know, that would get us some money, and the money would go towards recording, typically. But um, I, I don't believe that it was always covered entirely by playing shows. I don't think we ever were able to do that. So Rob, yeah, spent his hard-earned money. Uh, for a very short time, I had I had I, did, I personally had an audition in the Smokes as the bass player. We practiced once. But, you know, I commute from Vegas up and down, back and forth, and we got to play a show one time at the White Eagle in 2010 um, with no practice whatsoever, just kind of showing up cold. And uh, that's the next song I'm going to play because I'm just so happy about it. It's It's a great cut, and I'm on bass, and that's all you need to know.
And the crowd goes wild. You gotta really appreciate um, all the uh, the fans that we have. <laughs> so that was The Smokes live at the White Eagle with yours truly on the bass guitar with no practice on a song called I'm Down. And I'm so excited. You know, you can tell the difference clearly between a, a high professional, high dollar recording at Supernatural Studios versus uh, my shitty SM58 live recording uh, of the White Eagle show. But nonetheless, what really appeals to me is when you have a piece of music uh, that transcends the recording quality. The The performance is so good. The passion is so intense that it just doesn't matter. This Smokes Live record, which is going to be coming out very shortly, uh, you know, for, the, for free to the public, for everybody's enjoyment, uh, will be available to be listened to and enjoyed. You know, what I, what I think about uh, when I hear that man is, you know, first and foremost, you know, I, so cool that I, I was able to, as 19 years old, start playing drums and, and along the way, um, you know, meet these people and, um, you know, create these sounds that wouldn't otherwise exist. So when I hear those, those rec- that record, the live record, I mean, of course, I'm going to think, oh, this could be different and it certainly could be better. But that was the songs. We, I think, had something there, maybe on some small replacements level, uh, no no. Uh, not comparing, but like we, we tried our best, but didn't try that, you know, as hard as you could have. But to Mark's point, we, we really put it out there when we, we played live and, and you know, well, I don't think it's, I don't think it's far off to say that we, we weren't the soberest band by any means. We didn't go into our shows. Um, For the most part, we weren't a, um, we weren't a partying sort of, sort of band. Um, no, we, we wanted to get home as quickly as possible after the shows were done. Yeah, but, and, and that's what became part of the grind towards the end is, you know, with the whole evolution of being young and in my 19, early 20s to wanting to do it and thinking it was simple as just playing good music and someone finds you. And I really wanted the end result of, of music. I wanted to be the famous rich drummer for in, a, in an established band that reaps the benefits. I didn't want to do the work. You know, I, I didn't want to actually. Sure. Yeah, I didn't know what that took. And so. A couple of times we went out on the road. Um, it was just really clear that I don't want this. Uh, it's fun, um, but you know, homesick or broken on the road, and it's a really unhealthy lifestyle. And this is before Wi-Fi or phones or anything, so you just have so much time on your hands to kill. You know that um, you know once it became less about making it, it's just about making music and um, being part of this this group of friends. Um, and, you know, Ellie, this came out of nowhere. I, I had no idea this even existed. So what a nice, cool blast from the past. It was, you know, nice, nice way to yeah. start to start thinking about this all over again. Yeah. And, you know, uh, be on the lookout because it'll be available free to the public, courtesy of 525 Records. And, you know, when you're talking about focus and creativity, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but, you know, your guys' commitment to always showing up for band practice, you're never missing it. You're always in tune, you know, focused on what's happening. That, to me, that really exemplifies you guys in a big way. A lot of bands that I've been in, you know, we spend so much time getting trashed before the show. You guys, you guys put it all into the performance, into the creative aspect. You left 110% effort on that stage. And that was your outlet. It wasn't just like we were saying with Rob, you know, the lack of the prima donna ego, the humbleness, the just, you know, austere sort of focus on creativity. Um, that to me was the smokes. And I think that's so cool. You know, it's, uh, you know, put it on the stage. 
that's the outlet. It isn't in self-destruction or getting trash before shows. It's, it's in the actual performance and the execution.
Well, you know, and all these years later, I see guys like Rob and Pat and Mark and everybody else too, but mainly Rob and Pat, you know, these troubadours that spent a lifetime just slogging it out, paying dues, playing clubs, touring the I-5 corridor up and down the coast. And, um, you know, just it, this is what it takes to have any kind of modicum of success in the music business and music today. It's, it's so, it's such a shadow of its former self. And this comes back to the dream of the nineties is alive in Portland. Like you had to be alive back then to really realize how many awesome bands there were and how much of a focal point it was in terms of culture in the city, people going out to shows before the internet. I mean, yeah, it was just a very special time. Hey, Elliot, I, I made this list and these are the bands that were going on in Portland when I was playing in the nineties, right? Hit me. So Hazel, Pond, Everclear, Heat Miser, which had Elliot Smith, the Spinanes, Dead Moon, who were regulars at the warehouse, by the way, um, Poison Idea, Sleater Kinney, uh, Dharma Bums, the 30 Odd Six, and the Dandy Warhols. I mean, those were all in-town bands, and we were not in town with them. They, they were playing places that we would never even touch, but but that's what was happening. And th- they were not rich. They didn't have tour buses. They weren't like, you know, millionaires. They they did it because they loved it very I can't believe you brought up Hazel and Pond because on the last episode of the podcast, Eric yeah. Bush went off on Pond and how great Pond was. And of course I got into it right after that and was blown away. But you bring up Hazel. We were, we talked a lot about Mike Lastra, who's a fantastic engineer in Portland. He'd mastered almost everybody's record, talk about poison idea. He did a, a couple of Hazel records, a lot of punk bands. So that's it's just another connection back to that that whole scene. You know, another unsung uh, hero of the Portland uh, scene, but did a lot of those right. records. Well, I think we, we were it was so easy just to put us in the shadow of Seattle during that time that we were just some sort of grunge light sort of thing. And um, at the time, I didn't even see it. You know, at the time, I would take it almost as some like arrogant, egotistical affront that some of these bands were getting big and I wasn't getting big. But, you know, these were the bands that best I know did, did what I wasn't prepared to do. And that is, you know, hit the road, played and played and played, actually followed through on what they were, they were putting out there. And it was great. It was great being, you know, the city was very alive back then. Well, I think this brings us up to the point where the I can, I can't start to become into existence uh, sort of post smokes. Seth moves to Austin. You guys have a brand new band called the I Can I Can'ts, and uh, I'm so happy because I get to do more shameless self promotion. But uh, during that time in 2010, I happened to play bass on that record. I was also, for a very brief moment in time, the bass player in the I Can I Can'ts, which I think is awesome. What was it like starting that band? How did that get together? So here's how I remember it, uh, going along in the smokes, uh, and then Rob, um, and his family were moving to Montana. He, you know, he announced it one day in practice and, and, um, I feel like I was, it kind of came out of nowhere or it was taken by surprise and, and, uh, you know, happy for him, but also, Hey, this is, this is ending. And so as we walked out of practice and I remember just saying, Hey, Mark, do you want to, do you want to start a band or make some music? And he said, yeah. And simple as that. Mark saved our band like there with when Pat left and Pat had better things to do. And, and I love everything he's done. Um, so just he's one of the people I idolized in my upcoming musical youth. And, and, and he so being a band with him was great. But Mark, when he joined, when Pat left, you know, Rob could slide over once, you know, once Seth moved away again and, and Mark filled in 
Mark filled in all the bottom there. I didn't have a rhythm section for the last half of the smokes, and, and but uh, in, in, in a traditional sense, I didn't have a bass player. But you know, Mark, Mark filled all that in, and uh, you know, I don't know if Mark knows this, but I'm not the first person to to say that that, that Mark saved the smokes. But, I mean, 100 uh, changed it, and we would not have remained viable. Uh, I really don't believe um, had he not joined. You know, what, when we started that band, Walking Out of Rob's House, you know, I didn't know uh, Mark as a, a songwriter. I knew him as a keyboard player. Um, I didn't know him as much of a guitar player. I think I'd seen him play the bass in, the, in some Senators shows. There was no less cash. There was only a can of cans towards the end of the smokes once Rob moved back. But I mean, so I didn't know what I was getting into, that Mark could write these songs, that he could sing um, and Mark had a very different way of keeping a band together. He liked to practice, you know, he liked to hammer things out. And I, I was not used to that. And I, I think I have a bit of a thin skin when it comes to, to taking suggestion. And so, I mean, I, I, I didn't have as much fun, I think initially, because it was a bit heavy handed. And so when you enter Andrew into the picture, the, to me, that's when the I can, I can't formed like Voltron and became, you know, a unit, like a real thing. So what, uh, what do you remember? How did like, how, talk me through when, uh, Andrew came into the band. I guess, you know, he, it's real simple. I mean, he, he didn't, he knew, again, he, he fit, he worked with a lot less and, and it, it's really seemed, seemed to work, um, real steady. Um, sometimes you have to talk him into stretching a little bit, taking a little bit of a chance because he's comfortable just, you know, kind of hanging out around the root notes. These are just all the best attributes that you want in a bass player. And like earlier yeah. in our conversation, yeah. I was ripping on drummers who are, can't resist doing fills in the first verse of the first minute of the first song. They're just plastering a drum fill. That's kind of my style on bass. I'm sort of just like, oh, let me fucking take a dump right over this verse right here, you know, and just play way too many fucking notes. And this is why when Andrew comes in, boom it becomes a unit and you, this is the best thing you want in a bass player is that the foundation you know what's going to happen you know it's going to be there it's going to be holding down the low end like you're supposed to do on a bass guitar i you know we were talking about rob and uh, what makes him such a great songwriter to me anyway in my humble opinion you know, he's always on the cusp of love and uh it's always you know, a crazy love story broke up with the girlfriend and, you know, Mark has that similar vein in his songwriting. It's very along the same line. And I think that's what makes a lot of the songs so good. But And these came out of nowhere, you know, Mark just like, they felt like for every other day we get, get a text message like, Hey, I'm posting this new song to, to SoundCloud. Um, and just this, you know, this prolific part of his life and just had the, the ability to go down and do all that. And, and it's just, impresses me like you know i'm happy to to be a drummer and i think that when people set out to make their own music like mark i think the one thing they probably could use is a a drummer because um uh, that's just something that maybe the guitar players think is easier than it looks but uh um you know it is just incredible that anyone can do anything uh, close to to, to to all of that and i don't know how we Dude, the sheer volume of songs that he's pumped out it, it really is it is the the mark mysterial uh manifestation of magnificent opuses i mean mark has written more songs than mozart ever did and he's forgotten more great songs than anybody that i know including myself will ever write what about uh what's next for the i can i can't what are you guys you guys have been practicing on the regs now is there any talk of a record or uh what what's the status oh gosh man i don't even know i mean it's 
anymore. We practice and then we make a plan to do <laughs> to a next again the next time. <laughs> yes, make a next practice. There's not a show book yet. <laughs> and we hope to make that next practice. I, I will say this: uh, this feels like a real good run because you know life has just settled down for the three of us, and, and so we have some some time. Um, so what's next, man? I'm gonna go down to make make these make noise with these people and. Uh, um, happy to be a part of it, and then you know, see if see if we can get together tomorrow or next that, week. That's the best part, man. When when you guys, when a group of guys just is going to the basement with no intentions, no anything other than the love of the music and the passion of trying to do it, with no other ulterior motive. You guys love it so much that you're going to go down in the basement and do it together with no expectations and no hopes and dreams. Just be just sheer love and passion for the music that you're creating as a unit. I think that's beautiful, and that's those are the best band situations. I would say when I started, you know, doing this when I was 19, I had one ambition that's to, to make it, you know, whatever that meant. And, and, you know, within 10 years of starting, I realized I, I don't want that. And then, um, you know, it had our ups and downs and, and bands, you know, bands break up and people come and go, um, life happens, but we've all stuck together. And, and, you know, I have everything I ever, I've ever wanted to get back from music and that are days like today and um the music we're gonna make and the sound that exists because i'm a part of it and that the network of people who know me and i know them and you know whatever legacy it is for for my children that they can put on a record or listen to this podcast that their, that their dad was a part of um you know they'll, they'll never know me to, to 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 play a show probably they'll probably never see me um there is no video so i mean like Never did it for money. I, I did it for, for friendship and I did it to have fun. And you're so right. I feel so cool every time I get behind that that drum set. I feel like that 19-year-old, uh, I don't care if it's on a stage or in a basement. It's 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 the one thing that never gets old that, that, that keeps me coming back to it. And on that note, we'd like to thank you for listening to the 525 Records podcast. I couldn't think of a better way to close that out. And as always... The 525 Records Podcast brought to you by the Seaside Brewing Company in Seaside, Oregon. 